I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new here, this is what you can expect. Twice a week, we'll be interviewing a different thought leader. For the most part, you can look out for new episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll talk to doctors, researchers, creatives, founders, therapists, and healers. I'll take turns interviewing mentors and friends. And my chief content officer, Elise Lunin, will interview many more people who we look up to here at Goop. I think you're going to like hearing from Elise, and I hope you'll learn something from every guest we have on the podcast. I know I always do. Elise's guest today is the real Erin Brockovich. Erin is one of the most inspiring women of our time. Her story goes way beyond the movie, and she's still working as a consumer advocate and environmental activist today. Elise got to ask Erin about how she became a rebel and a fighter, and we're hoping it rubs off on us. But when people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, which I really think for a long, long time, I mean, I can look back on my family, my upbringing, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, how we believed in government and all the officials and that they would never tell us a lie. As that starts to unravel, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. We'll get to Elise and Aaron in just a second. I believe that when women turn 40, we get what I call a software upgrade. We tend to stop caring so much about what other people think. We have more wisdom than when we were younger. We're finally comfortable in our skin and we're able to speak our minds. Being 40 is different now than it was for our grandmothers and even our mothers. We're living in a time when we can redefine what this phase of femininity means. There used to be a perception that after 40, it was all downhill, but I think the opposite is true. Life after 40 is an incredibly exciting time when I think women really step into their power. And it's also a time when you might experience mood shifts or begin sweating a little more. A lot of friends and readers who are approaching midlife have told us that they start thinking back to what their mothers went through in perimenopause and menopause, and that they don't have time for these interruptions now, so they want to double down on their health. I'm not in menopause yet, but at the age of 46, I can feel a perceptible shift in my hormones. I probably sweat a little bit more at night than I used to, and my mood is less consistently even, just ask my children. In addition to tweaking my approach to fitness and continuing to eat a lot of whole foods, I started taking Goop's newest vitamin and supplement protocol, Madam Ovary. We developed it with Dr. Dominique Reed. She's one of the most extraordinary doctors I've ever worked with. She's exceptionally good at supporting the body to ease the aging process so that it's almost imperceptible. Madame Ovary is designed to provide some support for thyroid health, as well as things like mild hot flashes, mood shifts, and stress-related fatigue. In every packet, there's a multivitamin with phytonutrients, omega-3 fish oils, and herbs like black cohosh, which has been used to support women's health for centuries. I feel like I have fewer days now where I feel cranky or emotional for no apparent reason, and when I'm even, a packed schedule is a little more manageable. You can learn more about Madame Ovary on Goop, along with our four other vitamin protocols, Balls in the Air, Why Am I So Effing Tired, The Motherlode, and high school genes. 
Each box comes with 30 daily packets and you can subscribe so you never run out. And if you order just one box of Madame Overy now, we'll include the second one on us. Just head to goop.com slash Madame Overy podcast and enter promo code Madame. That's goop.com slash Madame Overy podcast and use promo code M-A-D-A-M-E to get your second box on us. Now let's get to Elise and Aaron Brockovich. So everyone who's listening probably knows your name, has seen the movie. God, I love – I that is one of my favorite movies of all time, I have to say. How uh, – how, when you watched that, were you like, this is actually what happened? Yes. Well, first of all, you know, my running joke is I always say, hi, I'm Aaron Brockovich, not Julia Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> because – well, you're as beautiful as Julia Roberts. Well, that's really nice of you to say. Um, <laughs> she's she's lovely, but thank you for saying that. Um, you know, I don't think we ever really thought the film would happen. Carla Schomburg, who was one of the executive producers, would always tell me, you know, a lot of times we buy scripts, they never happen, and they sit on a shelf. So I just really went about my business working. But things started to clip along really quickly, and... When Steven Soderbergh got involved, and then we were all kind of like, well, who are going to play these roles? And Ed and I used to have a conversation about it, and he said, oh, I don't care who it is as long as it's not Julia Roberts, which I still (laughs) laugh at. Why? He said her boobs weren't big enough, and her mouth wasn't foul enough. It was never going to (laughs) happen. So when I got the phone call that it was Julia Roberts, I... I was dying laughing. I couldn't get a hold of Ed fast enough. I was like, neener, 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 guess who it is? And so back to your question about, you know, its accuracy. After the film was made, it was Ed and I and each of our spouses that saw the movie before anyone else. And so Ed was kind of watching Julia's role. I was watching Ed's role. We were both kind of just astounded how many times they referenced PG&E, and we were both monitoring the accuracy. Mm -hmm. And we felt really good about it. I mean, Ed was like, oh, my God, she nailed you. And I'm like, oh, my God, Albert Finney nailed you. And we really felt good about all the accuracy. Mm-hmm. Soderbergh and Jersey Films, Universal, they really stayed true to a story. So its accuracy was there. You know, they took very little creative license. And we feel good about that. And then once, like, the Hinkley residents and our family saw it and we could gauge their opinion, they were just, like, really happy, yeah. So that probably has to be rare, but that I think it is totally, how did that, I can only imagine the number of ways that that movie changed your life, but were you before the movie happened with the initiation of the case and taking on PG&E and finding, you know, everything that happened, were you like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And now you're just doing it on a grander scale. You know, that's a really good question. And one that I have just recently really kind of woken up to it. So it's one of those things you get thrown into something. I was a single mom. I needed a job and I had to work. And I never expected this in my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I would have thought I would have become a doctor. That's what I always wanted to do. I've been very interested always in public health and welfare. Mm -hmm. So I kind of got thrown into it and it's thrown into this, thrown into your name being known. I mean, things that I'm so uncomfortable with. I mean, when the film came out and they did the whole red carpet thing, 
I was shaking so bad when I got off. Everyone from Universal said, if we can't get you to calm down, we're going to take you home. <laughs> I mean, it's like, don't stand me next to Catherine Zeta-Jones. I was like, oh, I ran. I'm like, I just, I'm so uncomfortable. It was nothing I could be prepared for, was trained right. for, or sought to do. It just happened. And, you know, I truly believe when we do things and it comes from a pure place with no agendas, things will often work out, but I never saw it coming. Mm -hmm. It's really been of late that I've been able to look back at what was perpetuating me. A lot of how I was raised has a lot to do with it. I was born and raised in Kansas. Um, I'm from a wonderful family that taught me a whole lot about, you know, values and respect and the importance of water and the environment and our health. I mean, really, at the end of the day, that's all we have, and that's mm -hmm. what's important. I struggled a lot through school because I'm a dyslexic, so I was always seen as different. And it really wasn't until Hinkley and really of late that I've been able to see what really was pushing me was the suppression that I was getting. Mm. And I didn't recognize it then. I didn't even really recognize it as a kid, but I always fought against it. And I never liked the label. I never liked being judged. I never thought you had to be any one way to be a person and to be kind and to learn. And when I went out to Hinkley, everything that had kind of gone on in my life was now staring me in the face. My mom and dad and what they taught me, people being harmed. I believed them, everyone not believing me. And that whole pushback started to come in about, you're not this, you're not mm -hmm. that. Why are you here? Why are you snooping? Go away. That I just started to really bubble up. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Poked the beast, right? And it's like, I don't have to be any of that to be a human and to tell you what I see is wrong. And I have nothing to lose by standing up and speaking out for these people. And even now, more so today, and we've all kind of watched the movements and stuff, there has been this overall suppression or these ideas or we're within the box of how we are and aren't supposed to be. And I think we're really busting out now. Mm -hmm. And I didn't recognize at the time that that's what I was doing, but I can... I have a clearer vision now, now that I've gone almost 18 years, but that it was the idea that people saw green water, two-headed frogs, people were sick, the trees were dying, and nobody wanted to hear them. And because of that, because somebody was hiding something, they got this, you be quiet. You don't know what you're talking about. And then our self-esteem is impacted we're uncertain of ourselves, and we think, well, maybe I'm not educated. Maybe that's reserved for someone else, and maybe I should just shut up. Right. And I saw that happening to them. And so it became a really deep moment for me that I understood. And I'm like, oh, hell no. We're saying something. Totally. And so your advocacy since then, because obviously you could have almost retired probably after you, you guys won that case, but your ongoing advocacy, do you feel like you're speaking – I'm sure it's all this – all the same, but that it's more about giving voice to the people who are being told that they're being told to shut up? Or do you think it's about environmental protection? Or like, what's, is that what continues to drive you to this day? Yes, because it's definitely environmental protection, because all of us need water mm -hmm. and clean air. And without it, it's game over for all of us. So I know it's important to every single one of us. And 
my message has really become, I've learned that consumer advocacy is all of us Mm -hmm. and it's working with them and believing them Mm -hmm. and helping inform them and educate them and helping them find themselves and believe that even though they're not the politician or the engineer, that what they're experiencing is real and being able to rise up Mm -hmm. and speak out. And I'm not calling for riots in the street, don't get me wrong. But when you find yourself, it's unbelievably empowering that regardless of your education or how much money you do or don't have or your gender or your race, you can become exactly who you want to be. Mm -hmm. And I often see that people have lost themselves and don't believe in themselves because we've been in that box or that idea of somebody's got your back Mm -hmm. and I feel awful because I'm usually the bearer of bad news. Superman's not coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So tag you, we are it. And so that whole idea, and that's exactly what activism is, is that crescendo that we discover ourselves, we become more informed, more aware. We stand up for people who have been harmed, our children who are sick from poisoned water or polluted air. And we're fighting back. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing. No, I totally agree. I think that I this past however many years it's now been and this particular climate but a lot of these things are much much older much longer ancient legacies really right and so i i personally am relieved at the how much everyone seems to be stepping up in turn i mean maybe not taking to the streets but understanding their own sort of critical role Absolutely. And and that's where you find your voice and that's mm-hmm. where you will come alive. And when it becomes one and it becomes 10 and a hundred and a thousand, see, then that collective voice is heard mm-hmm. and there's great change on the horizon. So I feel more hopeful and optimistic today than I even did 10 years ago. That is great to hear. That was actually what I was just, when I heard great change, I was like, is that a good, good, great, like great change or big change? Where, where optimistic, why are you optimistic? Because I feel like the environment is the one thing that gives me an extreme amount of anxiety and angst and agitation. It does, me too. We are definitely facing some rollbacks right now, as we all kind of see the current political federal climate is not good for environmental policies. But we, the people, can still change that. And by way of example, I want to share a few stories with you, and you might see that hope as well. The women in Hannibal, Missouri, and most people should know Hannibal, Missouri, home of Mark Twain. They might not. We're very concerned because their water provider was using chloramines and they were having a lot of problems and they came to me. So anytime there's a water issue or an environmental issue anywhere in the world, people will come to me. So we got involved and we went and took a look at it and we were startled that many of the homes had lead levels higher than Flint, Mm. Michigan. Jesus. And so we began to educate this very small group of women, went from three to eight to 10 to 15, and they started to get mobilized about policy. You know, it used to be now the policies have changed, but that you only had to test for lead in municipal water once every four years. Mm -hmm. Imagine that. So most of us 
for years drank lead before anyone even did some testing. And then you can average the samples. So the person at the end of the line that has the highest levels would never know. Mm. We also educated them on the use of ammonia with chlorine. So it, what it ultimately does, long story short, is it creates very um, acidic water. And if you have old lead pipelines, like throughout 18 million miles, we have these old lead pipelines. When the water is corrosive in the distribution system, it etches the mm -hmm. iron. So all the lead and magnesium leaches out. And that's what was happening to them. They, they got very strong. They got very informed. They went door to door. They educated their community. And they called us back in, and they were kind of restless. You know, where do we go next? What do we do? And we said, well, have you ever thought of running for local city council? Because that's where a lot of these things begin. Mm. I think we think they come from this federal oversight, but a lot of this stuff happens right at your own city council. Mm. And so... Two of the ladies ran, and they won. And nice. they put a referendum on the ballot, no more ammonia, became law, and they're now lead-free. That's the power of an individual that gets involved with their community, that starts taking care of their backyard, and rose, and made a change. And we're seeing this happen across the country. Mm. We've been very involved in down in the Naples, Florida area with the whole toxic algae bloom. Mm. And to see the community come out in hundreds and thousands of them, we don't want this. You're killing our fish and our wildlife and our beauty. And people starting to look at local offices or push on local offices or push at a state level. I mean, we're now seeing where they're now at a city council level deciding we're not going to spray herbicides anymore. Mm. We're not going to spray Roundup anymore. Comes from the voice of the people. And it does make a difference. Mm -hmm. And it begins with us believing that we can and we should, and we have every right to speak up and speak out, especially about our water, our environment, and our health and welfare, period. Mm -hmm. And they're doing that. So if you can imagine an entire map and all these little lights popping on of people that are solving issues in their backyard we're making change and we've started a process that we just have to keep moving forward on. I love that. And and you might need to fact check me on this because you know far more about it than I do. But I remember having a conversation several years ago with Gary Hirschberg when he was working on Just Label It. And he's he's very outspoken. He's the founder of Stonyfield. And mm -hmm. yes, very, yes. Yeah. So very yes. outspoken about Roundup and glyphosate and the fact that people just really want to know whether things are non-GMO. And so he was saying, I believe, that Vermont, you know, was making yes. massive movements towards requiring labeling on a statewide level. And that sometimes that's enough because no, it, it's very complicated to package things differently depending on the distribution channel. Mm -hmm. So if they're going to have to change their packaging for Vermont, then they're like, well, let's just like become non-GMO. So I love the idea too of these small small local movements mm -hmm. being enough sometimes to trigger massive change for everyone. They are enough, especially when it becomes one and then 10 and then a hundred and then a thousand and 2000. And this is what I've clearly learned way back in, in my days in Hinkley, California, when it was one of us, you know, the company PG and go and eh, whatever, you know, 10, they're like, whatever a hundred. They're like, Hmm, you'd be get two and 300. They're like, what are they doing over there? Mm -hmm. And so we, 
I don't know if at some level we have been comfortable, complacent, or misguided that we've thought there was this protection and Mm -hmm. we're realizing now that veil has slipped Mm -hmm. and that we will have to rescue ourselves. And so I think that it, this is where we're going to turn the tide. Just, you know, I used to always say, because a lot of times people say, I don't care. I don't care. Well, you, you will care when it's in your own backyard. Well, I think that moment has happened where this is in practically all of our backyards. So as we wake up and we, in those pockets at a local level, in your own backyard, community, city council that spreads out to the state that can spread beyond that does affect change. And it is happening. And so, mm-hmm. you know, look what Vermont did all mm-hmm. those years ago. And look what we know today. There should be 30 more states becoming like that. Totally. And bit by bit they are. And I don't think, I think there's definitely some complacency, but I think that because the government is so complex and different agencies do things so differently, we see this a lot with personal care, which we we talk a lot about all the time on Goop, that there people assume because medical drugs are regulated very intensively mm-hmm. that the same oversight extends to things like shampoo and face cream. Whereas there's there's really no regulation. There hasn't been any regulation since oh, like yeah, 1938. The yeah, right, and all. same with mm-hmm. toxic chemicals. Mm-hmm. Like the 70s was that the last major reform? Or well, we just did an overhaul um, right before President Obama left office. The oh. Frank Lautenberg. So there's a very interesting law in there that I work on. It's called Trevor's Law, and it's about creating the first ever national cancer registry database. Because believe it or not, we mm. don't have one. What? Yeah. So people report state by state and state and state universities has that data, but they can't share that on the bigger picture because of HIPAA. So they can't share that information. Even if it's anonymous, anecdotal, no names attached? Well, who are they going to share it with? I mean, so it stays within the state. And Sometimes it's best for me to explain why by way of example and and how I began my mapping project, which is becoming a true obsession for me. Los Angeles Times had done an article many, many years ago that Aaron Brockovich was wrong, that there was no increased cancer risk in Hinkley. Mm -hmm. Which annoyed me because, A, I didn't get involved in Hinkley to find out that there was a cancer cluster. For me, one person with cancer was one too many and Mm -hmm. something was up. So I made some phone calls around to the reporter and to the state and to Loma Linda and was asking a couple of questions, how it is they came to that conclusion. And what I learned was that they had anticipated there would be 221 cancers in the Hinkley area, and they found 196. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, well, you're close. So can I ask you a few questions? One, what years did you look at? And they go 92 to 96. And I'm like, well, why would you look in just those years that were way late in the game and the heaviest exposures would have been prior to that? Really, no one gave me a solid answer. And I said, did you look up death records? No. And I said, well, where are you getting your information? I From reporting. From reporting of where? Collected information from doctors that so many people in that area during that time frame reported cancer. They said, well, did you monitor any migratory pathways? So for all the people that lived in Hinkley in the late 60s and 80s and late 80s that had moved away, if they had cancer or not, no, we hadn't. I said, well, what I find interesting is over 100 people who lived in Hinkley and moved away 
have come to me and reported that they have cancer. Mm. So that's 100 people that isn't a part of your data set. And if you add that to 196, now I'm not very good at math, but I think that <laughs> exceeds your number. <laughs> and so I learned, I started mapping. Even in the movie, they'll show you that I was mapping stuff. Mm -hmm. And again, this goes back to the dyslexia, and I'm very visual, so I have to see and touch everything. So I've started my own map, which now has thousands of communities reporting because of HIPAA, if people are allowed to self-report or they know about a situation and they know that they can report back to a location, we're finding all kinds of data sets that we haven't seen before. So we'd like to take a shot at being the National Cancer Registry Database. I have a partner out of DC that has an amazing software. So we married her software to the map and it's starting to make those correlations for us. Mm. So I have a, I'll put out a situation in Fridley, Minnesota, and they are a big Superfund site. And a community worked really hard to, you know, get the information out there. And this was what a time where Facebook was just coming out. So we said, create a Facebook page. Well, what happened was amazing. About 5,000 people saw it. They're like, oh, I'm from there. And they reported back. Mm. But what interested us even further was 900 of them reported back with cancer. So that's 900 people that moved away from that point of origin where they would have been exposed that are 900 people that the state was unaware of. That changes cancer numbers. Yeah. And so I'm very interested in following these numbers, not to find out about a litigation, but we can't go forward and find solutions if we don't know where the problems are are mm -hmm. or where the people went. And so the map is helping to show us that bigger picture. How many of them are located around super fun sites? Like I grew up in Montana and Butte, for example, the Anaconda pit is still there, still open, massive mining pit from, from Copper Baron days. Like, are you able, is there an extreme correlation or is it actually more not random, but not as not as direct as that. Not as obvious. Well, we're well. There's a lot of information that you know. I think the reason we don't have some of these registry databases, and I feel awful saying this, but I've seen it, and I could get into another conversation about a medical device gone really bad, a women's device called Esure, mm -hmm. that really kind of showed me what was going on. We're antiquated in many ways in the government within our technology systems. And I sometimes see two things happening. A, they don't want to find the data or B, they don't know how to find the data because they're not technology that is not advanced enough, mm -hmm. which concerns me. So either they're inept or they're incapable and neither of that's going to work for any of us as people. And so we can kind of see where the loopholes are and they don't want to make an association that water, and then again, this takes us into policy, and this is a deep, long conversation, but this is where change has to happen. And I'm going to digress for a minute, why I'm very excited about my book coming out, we hope in the fall, because it's the truth of America's water supply. But it explains to you in layman's terms how we got here, mm -hmm. what it means, and backs you up to policy. Mm. And I'll, I'll jump back and forth here and I'll, I'll kind of share with you what's happening with the chemical today to explain it further. But these are the issues that we're missing because we don't let people report and we're starting to see and make those correlations. Mm. 
Not long ago, I took my map, which is called communityhealthbook.com. So I, I looked at all the live reports. And remember I said to you, I'm visual. I'm like, gosh, that looks familiar. Where have I seen this map before? I go, oh my God, the EPA Superfund map. Mm. And I overlaid my reports and it's almost an identical match mm. to the Superfund site. So that tells me a lot that people are reporting from contaminated areas that they know nothing about. They're not getting a cleanup. They think they've had a cleanup. They say it's not in their location. It's not in their water, et cetera, et cetera. So when you asked about that, it is correlated. Mm -hmm. I don't know why we want to think that when we have 80,000 plus chemicals into the marketplace, of which the EPA has really only studied about 200, mm -hmm. that we somehow don't think that a poison is a poison, and when it's in your water and you drink it over time, that it could actually have these health impacts. Right. We are really ass backwards in our thinking that way. We should be studying these chemicals and have a proven scientific result before they ever hit the marketplace. Absolutely. But we don't do it that way. And we're going to have to fight to get that to happen. And by way of example, where I told you I would jump around a little mm -hmm. to help better explain how this works, is the chemical perfluorococcotonic acids, which is also known as C8 and Teflon mm -hmm. or firefighting foam, which we're all aware of. These are very toxic chemicals. So a good 20 years ago, the manufacturer 3M let EPA know this is a pretty bad actor. Mm -hmm. Once it's in the environment, it's pretty difficult to get out. EPA says so noted. So what we'll do is set a guideline. Now, you have to set a guideline and study a chemical to know whether it does or doesn't cause cancer before you can go move to make a law and create an MCL, which mm -hmm. is law, maximum contaminant limit. So here EPA sets a guideline on this chemical of about 400 parts per trillion. Everybody goes along. So what this guideline says to the municipalities, we can let that much contaminant through up to 400 parts per trillion. Just based on speculation. But that's the number they set. So if it's 401 parts per trillion, you're over it. But if it's 399 parts per trillion, they're within the guideline. They're within the limit. So there's no problem, right? Well, science is catching up with policy now. Science caught up on this chemical three years ago, and they notified the EPA. This chemical causes thyroid cancer, testicular cancer, kidney cancer, excessively high cholesterol, miscarriages, and a plethora of other reproductive issues. So what does the EPA do? Uh-oh. We have to reduce that 400 parts per trillion. Let's go down to 70. So what happens on my end of the world is every municipality starts screaming, we don't have the budget mm. to reduce that to 70 parts per trillion. What are we supposed to do? And then they have to send out notices to the communities. This chemical is here at these levels. We can't meet the 70 parts per trillion guideline. Then what happens to Aaron? they start reporting to my map by the thousands. Mm. I live in this community. I'm by this site. I just got my notice. Is this why my son has testicular cancer? Is this why my child died of kidney cancer? And I'm like going, oh my gosh. So we're doing it backwards. Mm -hmm. We should have never gotten in that position, but that is the position we're in with some 80,000 plus chemicals. So 
as we learn more and science catches up with the policy, I expect that we will begin to do better. Mm-hmm. And we're at that threshold right now. As as individuals, I mean, and I obvi- hope that made sense. That made perfect sense. See, I told you I'm the bummer at a party. Everyone's like, what'd you bring her? I'm depressed now. <laughs> I'm serious. And I, no, I'm sitting here looking at you and I'm like, oh my God, this, this is so depressing. You are Superman. So before it gets to that point, before cancer, before reproductive issues, are there things that you feel like tests, is it like, should, should we all be responsible for checking our own water sources? Should we be like, what, what do you feel like people can do beyond sort of well succumbing? This is everything that we've been talking about. Don't expect mm-hmm. that policies and rules and regulations and oversight has got your back. Right. Unfortunately, it's a very flawed system. There could be a whole host of reasons. I could sit here and blame everybody, but I'm not going to. This is where we as a consumer become accountable for ourselves, our health, and our family and our neighbors. Don't be afraid to rise up. You know, a lot of times people think, I can't do science. Yeah, you can. It's actually fun. You know, now it takes you a while. I mean, you should have heard me say perfluorococatonic acid the first few times I said it. (laughs) (laughs) But... Once you learn it and you realize you can do it, I think that becomes very empowering to the individual. And so don't take anything for granted. If you're uncertain about know your allergies, know your children's allergies, be in the grocery store. You know, we have these amazing apps now where you can click on that long name that Mm -hmm. I sit here and go, what? But it will tell you what it is and you can make decisions. I don't want that in my diet. Mm-hmm. I don't want to drink that. I don't want to eat that. It's a chemical. Mm-hmm. And because of all the latency periods, um, most chemicals carry long latency periods so you could be exposed and you don't come down with an illness for 22 years. This is why the migratory pathways are so important because they can go, where'd this come from? Is it genetic or was I exposed? Well, if you go to the map and they're like, oh my gosh, I grew up in Fridley, Maybe we should take a look at this because I have this cancer. So I now know I was exposed to a chemical. Mm. So we can begin to make those correlations between chemicals and disease. But when people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, which I really think for a long, long time, I mean, I can look back on my family, my upbringing, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, how we believed in government and all the officials and that they would never tell us a lie. As that starts to unravel, we turn to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's where you become empowered. It's information. And we're in a huge information era I mean, Facebook and social media changed all of our lives, right? Yeah. So the ability for you to learn is right here in the palm of your hand. And you step up and protect yourself and know your information and you decide for yourself. Hold on. We'll be right back. I love getting to talk with and learn from female executives at other brands. And I recently got to chat with Jamie Gersh, who is Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Old Navy. We hit it off pretty instantly. Jamie has spent 17 years working at Gap and Old Navy, so she's a veteran in the industry. I was particularly excited to talk with Jamie, though, because Old Navy has an incredible track record when it comes to the number of women who make up their workforce and the number of women who serve in leadership positions. Working at Goop, where this is also true, although obviously on a much smaller scale than Old Navy, I think about this a lot. How can we better support women and moms throughout their careers? 
how can we get more women into positions of power, I learned a lot from Jamie in a short amount of time. And over the course of a few episodes, I'm going to share some of my favorite parts of our conversation. Here is today's soundbite with Old Navy CMO, Jamie Gersh. So Jamie, I know that last year you guys did a stunt on International Women's Day that got a lot of great buzz. What do you have planned this year? Yeah, this International Women's Day is going to be even better. And we really want women and girls everywhere to know the sky's the limit. So we are going to be spreading our love upwards, literally, and partnering with professional sky typers to put women's empowerment messages in skies in key cities throughout the country on International Women's Day, which we're very, very excited about. That is amazing. I hope they'll be flying over Los Angeles so I can see. They will be. They'll be in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and New York, and we're hoping for good weather. <laughs> yeah, seriously. But no, it, it's March. It should be okay. Good. It should. Wise it should planning. Be good. Yeah, exactly. I know you guys didn't get to pick International Women's Day, but I think yes. you're, I think you're going to be good. No, and we're we're very excited because this year, last year, we had great T-shirts that celebrate women and girls everywhere, and this year the collection just kept getting better. And we were so inspired by the product that our design team created. Namely, there's a t-shirt that says hero with her in italics. So you really get the idea that women and girls should feel like their own heroes to themselves. And it inspired our marketing team to really come up with this idea that women and girls should feel heroes unto themselves and that the sky should be the limit. And instead of it going about it and saying, we're going to go and try to tell women and girls everywhere to shatter the glass ceiling, we really just want them to know that the sky's the limit and they should be empowered to do whatever they believe they can do. I love that. Let's turn back to Elise and Aaron Brockovich. So, and then is the idea, and I would imagine that this is already happening, and I know you're back at bat with PG&E after all these years based on what happened in Northern California and the campfire. And what is it? Is the idea that these companies, as you start to create these communities around exposures or natural events that turn tragic that didn't need to, I guess, weren't natural events, um, that it becomes impossible to do business badly and that these companies are held accountable for what they're doing to pollute the environment and it becomes better business for them to... We're on the cusp of that. And it is better business for them. And I think they're starting to figure out that it will be better business for them. When it comes to PG&E, oh my gosh, I've spent endless thousands of hours laying in bed at night thinking about these things. And what a shame and what a waste. I mean, this is a company back in the 90s. And the root cause of all of this is deception. Mm. The root cause of all of this for all of us is lack of transparency and the desire to make money over being truthful about human health and welfare. And that's where they have failed every time. They falsify records. They lie. They conceal information. And that's what they did in Hinckley. But they'll they'll spend 200 million in defense costs and they'll spend another, you know, 333 million in a settlement and then they'll have it a 200 year cleanup on their corporate books. And they do that once, but then they did it again in Kettleman, which is a case that I uncovered. They tried to file bankruptcy on in 2001, but they still had to pay the claim that settled for 335 million Mm. to the idea of what they're doing in bat cave wash. 
in Topak on the Arizona-California border where they don't want to spend any of their money on appropriately disposing of all their hexavalent chromium, so they dump it into the Colorado River. Mm. Now, that's a big drinking water supply. To what happened in San Bruno, the explosion there, to the other explosions I was called in on before the San Bruno. So if you start adding up their bad behavior where they think they're going to save themselves some money by hiding information... And you look at Hinckley and Kettleman alone, along with defense costs, they've already spent like $1.2 billion. Mm. Add up all the other fiascos, you're talking billions and billions of dollars that they could have used appropriately to save the environment, save human health and welfare. They would have been a respectable company that people would have gotten behind that this is what they're dealing with. And I think a lot of corporations are waking up and seeing that and are going to watch how PG&E plays their hand out. Because I think they're at the end of the road. I think the train has finally going to come to a halt. And that is one, because so many people have now been impacted. They're like, we're done. Mm -hmm. And they're going to also push on their elected officials. But good corporate behavior doesn't cost you money. It can make you more money when you care about your environment, your community members, and their health and welfare. That counts. Mm -hmm. And I think they're starting to see that. I really, really do. And I can go a whole lot of places and I can hear a whole lot of companies that are like, we're not going to operate that way. There's all these green companies coming out. I mean, who knew? Let's go all the way back to Vermont, right? I mean, so a lot of people were visionary and it's just taken a long time for a whole host of politics and science and all of that to catch up where we now see we are in a can you cuss on podcasts? Yes. Oh, thank goodness. Um, no. <laughs> but a shitstorm, if you will. Mm -hmm. Look at all the climate change deniers. We are at that tipping point, and I think we realize it. And companies must step in here and mm -hmm. bring that tipping point back, and they can be a part of that if they just choose to. But it's now affecting them and their pocketbook strong enough mm -hmm. that they're going to step up and start making those changes. What do you predict will happen to a company? I guess Monsanto was bought by Bayer, Bear. Bear. Right? Oh, yeah. So what what do you expect will happen if, and, and that's a really difficult, terrible chemical that has been distributed across and is in our rainwater mm -hmm. for something that's harder to trace like mm -hmm. that, what... What do you anticipate would happen? Remember, we were talking about Naples, Florida earlier and the whole roundup. Well, now mm -hmm. you're talking about the pressure down in that area on the government and local council. And see, here's where this hit home for them, okay? Because people can't come to the beach because mm -hmm. it stinks because all the fish are dead. They're getting coughs. They're getting respiratory from all these mitotoxins that are coming from this algae bloom. So this is now affecting the city and their budget and their tourism. So they're making decisions. Hey, you know what? We're not going to spray Roundup anymore. Ding, ding, ding. There's your first go at it. So now if everybody along that area and those council members in each city made the same decision, you are impacting Bear at that point because you're not going to buy their product anymore. Right. And you're not going to use Roundup anymore. And they're going to watch and see if people get healthier and their tourism comes back and the fish stop dying and they become a, a life source again. Being they need to be doing this because we, I always call it, you don't shit in your own mess kit. And we are, you've mm -hmm. polluted the water and now the food chain, mm -hmm. then what? And so I think these council members, now that it hits their backyard are making these changes. And so for roundup, 
bit by bit by bit by bit, A, there's litigation going on. Mm -hmm. But just imagine if every city across America, every town, every city, and every state, and every state across America started to do what they're doing down in Florida. No more Roundup. Mm -hmm. You change something. Don't buy it. Find other solutions. And there are other solutions. A, that puts a company in check because they're like, oh, okay, well, no one's buying our products. Now that's really hitting our pocketbook. The communities are getting smart. They're getting savvy. They're looking at policy. They're changing policy. They're standing up to it because it's this question of a poison is a poison is a poison. I don't want to drink it. We get into this debate all the time with hexavalent chromium. Well, it's only, you know, six parts per billion and the guidelines, 10 parts per billion, and it can't really hurt you. And I'm like, what? Are you really kidding me? Mm -hmm. It's a poison. I don't want to drink six parts per billion or trillion or 0.02 parts per trillion. It's a poison. Mm -hmm. And I think people are starting to hear that message and they're seeing it in their environment, in their water, in their communities, in our food chain, in our fish. And we're going to have to step up and stop it. We don't have time to wait around for another policy or a regulation mm -hmm. or some oversight or think that the federal government or the state's going to have our back. Oh. At that very local level, you can make those change. It's a step forward. And that's the way we need to go is forward. So I'm very proud of them down in Florida. So no more Roundup. And let's watch what happens. If everybody did that, we might see those algae blooms become less and less. And if they become less and less, you're going to have fishermen back. You're going to have food supply back. You're going to have, you know, tourism back. And you're going to have a healthier child or a healthier person yourself. You can go out on the beach and not get watery eyes and itchy skin and have a cough and a burning throat mm -hmm. from mitotoxins. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important. And I'm seeing on the ground, see, I call myself a foot soldier. I like to see things that they are actually taking action mm -hmm. and implementing changes. And they're not waiting for somebody to tell them that that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. I think you said something else that's really important too, where you were saying like, at what level, like no level of poison is acceptable and that needs to be the conversation. Cause I feel like too, we experience it all the time in personal care products, et cetera, where people start debating the an appropriate dose or an acceptable dose. And the dose for you is not the same dose as for my two and a half year old child, et cetera. So it's like, let's just not waste any more time discussing this stupid bullshit. Let's not have these chemicals in the system. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's all this common sense that kicks in, but you just said it there. It's this standard or this idea that's been placed on us that we think is the guideline or the rule. And, you know, the whole chromium six argument, I mean, California was the first that finally set a standard for hexavalent chromium in drinking water. Mm. Uh, was 50 parts per billion, and that's a federal guideline. And then some states adopt it, and they have higher levels or lower levels. But the state of California was at 50. After 20 years of fighting for this, we finally got an MCL set at 10 parts per billion. But here's what bothers me about that. The public health goal, five of the top experts took a look at hexavalent chromium in drinking water, concluded a, there is no safe level, but if we're going to go there, we're going to go at 0.02 wow. parts per billion. But yet the standard got set at 10 parts per billion. So we still have a real discrepancy between what the health impacts are, the public health goal, which is what we should be going by, and how this MCL gets set. And it gets set 
for a cost evaluation whether utilities can afford to reduce it to that level. Mm-hmm. So here we are again with the poison is a poison is a poison. If every one of us woke up and there was some terrorist attack on our municipal water supply that had been tainted with a massive atrazine combination, PFOA, TC, I could just go on and down the list <laughs> chemical. And they said you could drink it up to five parts per billion. You don't stop and call and ask, is five parts per billion versus 10 parts per billion safe? You don't drink it. (laughs) And so Ed and I used to have these conversations all the time, and you brought up another really important point. We're individuals. Not everyone's the same. And they set all these guidelines based on a healthy white male. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. What about an elderly population? What about a child? Because it could be a totally different amount or a child that has allergies that can have a reaction that's too late. My brother was allergic to sulfur. Mm. He died. Mm. And he had asthma. And so all of these factors come into play. So there isn't any one set standard. So this is the value of the podcast and where we are today and social media and believing in ourselves. This moment is here that with all of our social media and information at our fingertips and podcast and celebrities and companies and politicians really standing up and speaking out and not being afraid to do that, that the change will come. And I think for me, that's so much of what I've been seeing is back to that word suppressive. Mm. They suppress information for the sake of a company to make more money. They conceal information. You know, as a dyslexic, you know, we're frowned upon because you don't fit in this nice, neat little box. Therefore, whatever you're doing is irrelevant. It's not true. And I think that so much has proven to us that that's not true Mm -hmm. and how these amazing ideas springboard from somebody and many of our great people that didn't get that college education or actually dropped out from high school, but they believed in themselves and they followed through and they asked questions and they worked hard and lo and behold, here we are. Mm -hmm. And that's the shift. It's really here. You know, I share a story a lot and I will today. I'll try to make it as fast as I can but I can't help myself. And I'm fascinated with this. I was born and raised in Kansas. One of my favorite films was Wizard of Oz. Of course. Have you ever read the book? No. Okay, well, here's what's interesting. L. Frank Baum wrote the book, The Wizard of Oz, before it became a classic film. And he wrote it right during the pre-industrial revolution that we were going through. And he wrote the book as a way to teach his children the power of individualism Mm. and thinking for themselves in a world that was increasingly beginning to speak for them. Mm. I'm like, oh, I like that. Now, there's a whole political meaning behind The Wizard of Oz that has been studied by some of our greatest scholars. Dorothy was a representation of the every girl in America. She saw something wrong, and she wanted to fix it, and she wanted to make it right. And so there's a twister, and the twister and the political allegory is a representation of chaos that's happening in government. Mm. Oh, that sound familiar? Mm -hmm. So she finds herself in, you know, the land of Oz. And the munchkins are a representation of the little people who feel voiceless, but they're encouraging her to go find the wizard who's any sitting president because he can help you. 
So on her journey, she meets the scarecrow, who's a representation of the American farmer, who everyone thought had no brain because the banks were buying him out. Mm. And then she meets the tin man that everyone thought had no heart, who was a representation of industry worker who had lost their heart. Mm. And then the cowardly lion was actually a representation of L. Frank Baum's very good friend that was running for office, who had fiery rhetoric, but he had no courage, and he never became president. So on their journey, they meet the wicked witch, who wants to do what? Suppress them. She doesn't want them to find out the truth when they get to see the great wizard. And so she puts him asleep in the poppy field. And I sometimes wonder if that's where we've been, mm. this whole political allegory. And it's like, oh my gosh, this makes sense to me. But when they get there, they realize that the wizard is nothing more than just a figurehead, somebody that's pushing and pulling a bunch of levers and doesn't really know what's going on and is trying to appease everybody. And that good witch comes along and teaches them. See, you've had the power all along. Mm -hmm. You have a heart. You have a brain. Find your courage. And you'll find your way home. And I think we're there. <laughs> and I know that is silly, but I think we're there. Thanks for joining Elise's conversation with Aaron Brockovich. I think it's pretty cool that we've had both Julia Roberts and Aaron Brockovich on the podcast. To learn more about Aaron and the causes she is championing today, head to brockovich.com. Now it's AMA time. When you are feeling sluggish or just not that great, what is the first change you would make to realign yourself? Is it cutting out dairy, a cleanse, workout? That's from Sarah. I think the first change I make when I'm feeling sluggish. Um, there's a couple things I do. I, I try to lay off alcohol for a couple days and make sure that I take some good walks in the evening after work to get circulation going and get some fresh air. I drink a lot of water and I try to focus even more on nutrition. For me, sleep, nutrition, and exercise are the kind of key pillars of, of feeling good. And cutting out alcohol is always a quick way to rebound. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the Goop podcast. We hope you'll be back next week on Tuesday and Thursday. To keep up, tap subscribe. And please let us know what you think. You can rate, review, or hit us up on social. For more, just head to goop.com slash the podcast 